Thank you, Len. The person who is uh, sort of, in the final analysis, responsible for my coming to this passage um, this morning is actually here. Um, someone uh, asked me if I would go and do um, little epilogues at a Christian um, rest home in Ipswich. And uh, what I've been doing there is steadily heading through the book of Acts. And I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I came to this passage for them, and I thought, oh, that could be for um, Burlington, because Paul is talking about confronting a pagan culture. The Heart for Ipswich group, we're thinking about how pagan Ipswich is and how churches, how Christians can get through that pagan problem of Ipswich. So it, it fits in. But uh, I don't know how you feel about the word culture. Some snobs in my hometown of Boston used to say that the only culture in Lincolnshire was agriculture. Now, I don't remember it being quite as bad as that. I can remember wonderful concerts, good art, theatre, and so on. But there are places, of course, that would have a greater claim to um, cultural excellence than the Lincolnshire Fens. Liverpool is the European capital of culture this year. Um, but maybe our thoughts would turn to some other major European uh, cities for a major cultural experience. But culture is all of these things. But some of us might turn away from the, the present, sorry, from the past, and turn to something really contemporary for our dose of culture. Uh, Cutting-edge theatre, art, music, that kind of thing. But if you wanted culture in uh, the Roman Empire of Paul's day, then Athens was the city to be in. It was living off its past to a large extent by the time Paul got there, but it was the Roman Empire's intellectual centre. When Paul got there, yes, he got some idea of what the people thought, but uh, he hadn't got an idea of the, the detail of the religious practices in the city. So he had to learn something about Greek beliefs and uh, what they believed. Now, the Greeks worshipped many gods, but they didn't really believe that there was any real connection between the human and the heavenly realms. They were completely separate. Each god ruled over a part of life, love, hunting, whatever. Zeus was the king of gods, and their stories include murder, cannibalism, promiscuity. They are dreadful stories. But there were two main schools of philosophy... Um, we need to think about them a little because Paul actually answered them. There were the Epicureans and there were the Stoics. They've given their names to attitudes that mirror their teachings. Um, the Epicureans believed that their gods were so remote that they took no interest in human affairs, that the world was due to chance, um, random alignment of atoms, there was no judgment um, after death, and human beings should pursue personal pleasure without pain, without passion, without fear. And I think we'd agree that that kind of thinking is prevalent today. We find it in scientific atheism. 
we'd find it in the consumer society and the pleasure-seeking society. Stoics, on the other hand, they thought that there was one supreme God above Zeus. He was the world's soul, but again, all determined by fate. What we should do is pursue our duty, trying to live in harmony with nature. Uh, We should live a life based on reason rather than anything else. And however painful it should be, that was the way we should go. And that, to me, sounds rather like the more extreme environmentalists and uh, those who would think about Mother Nature. So, one way or another, the Athens of the first century had much in common with the Ipswich of the 21st. So, let's see what Paul's response to the situation was so that we can work out our response to such a similar situation. When Paul was left alone in Athens, he became a sightseer, just as tourists at Ipswich go to see Christchurch Mansion and the statue of Grandma Giles. Uh, So Paul headed off to see the famous sights. And his reactions tell us how we should respond to a culture that's dominated by a non-Christian theology, ideology, the culture that surrounds us today. We need to understand what Paul's reactions were, what he saw, what he felt, what he did, and certainly a part of what he said. So Athens had a 500-year history. From an architectural point of view, it was absolutely unrivaled even today. The ruins are so grand. And then there was the Agora, a sort of combination of Parliament and Speaker's Corner. And Paul might have enjoyed the intellectual debates there, God had given him such a huge intellect. So Paul could have been bowled over by the history, the architecture, the the intellectual debate, the wisdom, but that isn't the reaction that Luke records. Paul's reaction, we need to think about what Paul saw. The NIV says, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. We'll come to his distress in a minute or two, but first let's understand what Paul saw. The Greek word that Luke uses, that's translated um, full of idols, that Greek word is found nowhere else. Not in all of Greek literature, not in the New Testament. It's a made-up word. It says that the city was smothered in idols. It was swamped by them. Writers of the time say there were more gods in Athens than in the rest of the country. It was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And all of these false gods were portrayed with great skill. The images were artistically beautiful. But Paul saw beyond the beauty to the idolatry. The fact of all of that God-given skill and creativity being used to honour idols and not the God who had created it all. So what did Paul feel? Seeing a city uh, emerge in idols, he was greatly distressed. The same word is used in the Greek Greek version of the Old Testament to describe God's reaction to idolatry. It's usually translated provoked. Paul was provoked by what he saw. Paul felt the same way about idolatry that God did. And when God is provoked by idolatry, the Old Testament uses the word jealous. 
We think of jealousy as wrong, but there's a right jealousy. When someone usurps the rightful person from their place, that's how we should feel when we see God ignored in favour of other idolatrous gods. It should motivate us to action, as did Paul. We've seen the Burlington emphasis is telling others, an emphasis on the how, telling our stories. But there's also a why. Why should we share the good news of Jesus with others? The instant answer is often uh, Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, go and make disciples. But we ha- so we have a command to obey. Is that Oh, well, the late Leslie Newbegin, a United Reformed Church um, missions expert, said that there's a higher motive for evangelism than just obeying an order. Love for those who would otherwise perish. John Stott says there's yet a higher motive even than that. He says that we should evangelize because of the, our holy jealousy our holy jealousy for God's name. Evangelism, there is a why. When we see people who deny Christ his rightful place, we should have the same urgency, we should feel the same urgency that Paul felt to help them to change their view. So having done it, what Paul did. Verse 17 begins with, so. It tells us that it was Paul's holy jealousy which led him to a three-pronged approach to the people of Athens. His reaction wasn't a negative despair at the situation he found. It was positive. It was constructive. He began to witness. He reasoned with the Athenians. He witnessed to this great God whose name was being dragged in the dirt. We can learn from what Paul did. We shouldn't be able to um, expect to be able to do everything he did. Paul was uniquely gifted in the history of Christianity. But what we can do is to look at what Paul did and then pick out the bit that corresponds to what we could do and do it. God has given us abilities, just as he gave Paul abilities. We can pick things out and we can do what Paul did in our little bit. Paul, above all, was uh, flexible in his approach, um, as we should be. There were three prongs to his approach. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearers. He reasoned in the marketplace and he disputed with the philosophers, first in the Agora, then in the Areopagus. That is, he spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation to religious people, to ordinary people on their daily business and to those at the very centre of the city's political and intellectual life. In today's terms, Paul went to church... He went to the pub or the leisure meeting place to a combination of TV, Parliament and University Debating Society. He would have been at the Oxford Union. He would have been on Newsnight. He would have been on the South Bank Show. He'd be active in politics and education. He'd be meeting people in the street. He'd be meeting the religious folk. Now, as I say, we can't hope to do everything that Paul did, but we can see bits where we might be able to be active. So what did Paul say? Well, actually, the philosophers were very rude to Paul. The word that's translated babbler was their word 
for a second-rate teacher who cobbled together a philosophy of life by stealing different ideas from other people to create a ragbag of plagiarised ideas and sayings. The philosophers also thought that Paul was advocating gods that weren't in the Greek system. When Luke says that Paul was preaching the resurrection, these men may have misunderstood resurrection. It wasn't an idea they would have understood easily. They may have thought that it was the name of a new god, Anastasis. Now the Areopagus was where the people acted as guardians of the city's religion, morals and education. Um, Have you heard the phrase, someone being warmly invited to go with you? Well, that was how it was with Paul. He didn't have any option to go. And what Luke provides us with, it's no more than a summary of the speech. It's not an absolute gospel model, but there are a few points to pick out. The first thing is, Paul didn't force his speech on them. They'd heard a little, for whatever reason, they wanted to hear more. If we force our message onto people, they stop listening. They'll hear the sounds, but not the meaning. Paul started where they were. There were several altars, actually, to the God unknown. They would have identified with what he was saying. He was courteous, but he pointed out that there were areas where even they admitted, we don't know. He identified an incorrect view of God, and he set out correcting it. In other sermons, Simon's mentioned incorrect views that people in the world around us today have about God. God is remote. He's uncaring. Why does God allow such and so? God is outdated. How do we set about correcting these views? Well, other people are dealing with the words. Um, I always try to remember that for some people, the only Bible that they will ever read is my life. I've already spoken earlier about the situation in Darfur, in the Muslim world, where people see Christians' lives and it interests them. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi is reported to have said, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. In yesterday's Encounter with God Bible Notes on James 2, Elaine Storkey wrote this, Today we live in an age where people are not convinced by what we say we believe, but by what they see in our lives. Only faith which is shown in action is faith which will touch others. But yes, Paul did use words to explain this unknown God, to explain the ignorance. And there are five points in his presentation. First of all, he said God is the creator of the universe. They wouldn't have accepted that, but... He said God isn't impersonal elsewhere. God is a personal creator. And God is not only the creator, he's the sustainer of life. He's the ruler of all of the nations. He's the father of human beings too. And then something which uh, maybe we'd think, oh, God is the judge of the world. It'll be the risen Lord Jesus Christ who carries out the judgment. And as Paul begins to speak of Jesus, risen from the dead, the whole speech gets too much for them. Off you go, they sneer. Enough's enough. And that is the kind of reaction that we can get. This is actually the third speech of Paul's that Luke records. They're all to different kinds of audience. But in every case, there have been two reactions. Rejection by many 
and acceptance by some. Athens was no exception. People who followed Christ seemed to have been quality rather than quantity. But Paul preached all the fullness of God. He preached that there will be a judgment, something which perhaps gets played down. He preached the big picture, everything that goes on in the world, not just a limited view. Maybe people reject something which they see as not being very strong. I don't know. But John Stott asks us some questions based on this passage. These are quotes from John Stott. He says, Why is it that in spite of the great needs and opportunities of our day, the church slumbers peacefully on? And that so many Christians are deaf and dumb. Deaf to Christ's commission and tongue-tied in testimony. I think the major reason is this. We do not speak as Paul spoke because we do not feel as Paul felt. We've never had that paroxysm of indignation which he had. Divine jealousy hasn't stirred within us. We constantly pray, hallowed be your name, but we do not seem to mean it or to care that his name is so widely profaned. Why is this? It takes us a stage further back. If we do not speak like Paul, because we do not feel like Paul, this is because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke. It all began with his eyes. When Paul walked round Athens, he didn't just notice the idols. The Greek verb used means to observe to consider. He looked and looked, he thought and thought until the holy fires of indignation were kindled within him. For he saw men and women created by God in the image of God giving to idols the homage which was due to God alone. That was John Stott on Paul's speech. This was Elaine Storkey on James chapter 1 and verse 22 in Thursday's encounter with God. It's all about doing, is James. She was quoting James 2 and verse 17. Sadly, it's all too easy to listen to God's word, maybe even to think about it, yet not relate it to the details of our lives. We can live in two quite different worlds. In one, we pray, worship, read scripture and talk about Christianity. And in the other, we work, buy, watch TV and conduct our business. And these worlds might barely coincide. We can even be unconscious of our failure to put God's word into practice in our normal everyday routines. So James' call to listen and act is a challenge indeed. So what are we going to do about it? Are we going to look at the godless world, at the world that gives idols the honour, gives to created objects the respect that is truly God's, and shrug our shoulders? Or are we going to do something about it? One thing we can do is pray. It's prayer week coming up. That's one of the reasons why I thought that this was a passage for today because it encourages us it drives us to prayer we're going to pray in a minute but there are plenty of opportunities to pray in this coming week for Burlington's part in confronting pagan Ipswich 
don't forget I'll mention it near the end of the service so you will remember there are the leaflets with ideas for prayer there is the prayer wall looking here I can see that there are great gaps there are some days where there's barely anyone signed up please sign up to pray during this coming week on your own or with others but do pray do sign up on the prayer wall of course prayer that doesn't transform into action is of limited value you may know the old quote we should pray as if all depends on God and act as if all depends on us serve as if all depends on others No one can make another person act in any particular way. Each one of us has to respond to what we believe God is saying to each one of us. So what has God said to us, to me, to you this morning? Let's pray.